0: Welcome to episode two of the Edlisten podcast. This is We're going to be talking about Hour of a Code, and we're going to take a little bit of a different view. We're going to be talking about it from people who work at the central office or support the teachers and things like that. Uh, my name is Bjorn Barent, and I'm here with Skylar LaBombard. Uh, and we'd like to thank you for listening. So hopefully, Skylar, you plan on being a regular co-host on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh looking forward to it. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh,
1: this year is my fourth year with the Bennington Rutland Supervisor Union. And and consequently, it's my fourth year as an administrator in in any school system. Prior to that, I was a teacher of second, fifth, and sixth grade. Also, all of my experiences in Vermont. Um, After being a teacher, the first two years I spent at BRSU, I was uh, the principal of Sunderland Elementary School. Uh, I have a particular interest in technology. I have a certificate of educational technology from Marlborough College when they were still um, doing those things. And yeah, so I've always had an interest in technology. And I, I think that we're in a unique position to provide our students with opportunities to use the one-to-one devices that we have. Um, an hour of code is just one way to do
0: that. Definitely. How long were you in the classroom, teacher? Because, I mean, I have very little experience in the classroom, but how long were you in there? So I taught uh, for a total of seven
1: years. I taught second grade for three years, fifth grade for two, and then sixth grade for
0: two. That's a good mix. (laughs) Okay. And then you became a principal, which I think is great because I don't think we hear many podcasts where you actually get a principal's perspective
1: too. Yeah, it's certainly a perspective that um, I think is, is kind of underserved in a lot of different communities. And and to be quite honest, when I ventured down that path to administration with an eye on uh, becoming a principal, I learned very quickly that um, although I thought I had an idea of what a principal was tasked with doing, uh, it's much deeper than
0: that. Well, I'm on the path to try and get to that point. Like my goal is to try and become a curriculum director. And from talking to you, it sounds like I might need to go through a principalship first, but...
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that it's required. Uh, I think it certainly gives you a good perspective because right now in my role as a director of teaching and learning, I have to hold a curriculum director's endorsement and I work most directly with our, um, we have actually, so six different schools, but eight total principals um, along with our assistant superintendent and superintendent. So those are the people I kind of rub elbows with the most. Um, and then obviously you and, and, um, <laughs> we, you know, we recognize that, or I recognized and advocated for your position to be created. Cause I think it's a super important aspect
0: that is somewhat underserved. And, um, and I think we're going to have a whole show about that one. Yeah. That's like one of my next shows is like, why did you, how'd you come up with this position? Yeah, absolutely. And I enjoy it very much. So, yeah. Well, we enjoy having you for sure. Thanks. Talk a little bit about what our code is. Our code is just, it's nationwide, isn't it? Or is it worldwide? Um, I think it actually might be worldwide though. I'd have to, I'd have to check. I'm looking at it. It's basically getting together a particular week or a particular month. I think the whole, they try and shoot the whole month of December as um, our code and what they want you to do is have your students watch a little website. There's a website called Hour of Code, uh, and then there's basically there's lessons and different activities you can do, all separated by grade level uh, that you can kind of go through and just spend at least an hour with your students uh, coding. It's a fun website. I've been trying to get other people to be using it too. Let's say at MEMS, they want to do, um, they reward the kids with computer time mm-hmm. so my suggestion was to go to the hour of code website and let them play those games because they are very educational right yeah no i i,
1: I think that it's it's great it's for teachers to kind of self-direct and it's something that as when i was in a classroom um we also had one-to-one devices and it was something that i recognized uh, the immediacy for and and because they're not just available during the hour of code time you know most of these resources are available year-round and it can spark an interest in a kid and you can uh, let them go kind of off to the races with it.
0: Yeah, I know. I remember being, oh God, I think I was 16 when I first started coding. And my dad had an old DOS-based computer. And the cool thing to do was to build these, just the menus. And so that was my first experience with coding. And I've gotten to the point where now I'm writing some add-ons <laughs> and doing a lot with it. So it, and it fits in every aspect. I mean, there's many, you don't have to be a coder and a gamer to go to it. I think there's many other little tiny things that if you learn the code, you don't have to worry about waiting for somebody else to solve the problem. Right. And I'll talk about that a little bit farther down the show. Um, Yeah,
1: I I actually think that there's this idea that it's, it's suited for like middle level Um, in our, you know, in our organization, we're only K to eight. So a lot of middle level teachers might be interested in using Hour of Code. But I think um, the biggest Bang for your buck actually is some of the low impact like activities where technology isn't even required, um, and it's just kind of logic like how would you direct this you know, stuffed animal to make it th- its way through this maze? So those those are all kind of low tech ways to start to introduce
0: coding at very young ages. Yeah, one of my favorite ones I think was at my a previous school. Uh, it was the graph paper coding, right? Yeah, and so you fill in the boxes to kind of go around and fill the puzzle, and and I thought that was kind of the, one of the coolest little needed neat things.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Moving on, uh, how do you think principals can support this? What are, I'm especially looking at you for this. Where's that role come into play?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's, you know, a, a lot of uh, principals role is to uh, be an instructional leader. Um, so I think if they take a particular interest in something like Hour of Code, uh, they can expose their teachers to the resources they could you know, make the community aware of it, because a lot of these resources are just internet based. So students can access them from home. I uh, also, and I don't know that I ever had the chance to implement this or ever really thought to implement it now. But in hindsight, I feel like it's something that I probably should have done, where there are some school structures that are kind of drop everything and read. And usually that's like, Maybe for twenty minutes a day, and the, you walk into that school and it's dead silent, and every everyone has a book in their hands, adults included. Um, and I think, like specifically for the you know the the quote unquote official hour of code, something like drop everything in code could be a model that could be put out there. We certainly have the technology capabilities to do that with students with one to one devices. It just would require some kind of larger scale organization that I think uh, you know the, the principal in concert with someone like you could could put into action
0: at the school level. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great idea. Especially I think like, I like getting the administrators involved in a lot of these things. It seems like they kind of sometimes hide in their office and they don't really get out there. It, yeah, it can certainly be challenging. There's a lot <laughs> of
1: there's no shortage of fires to put out as a as a building level principal. I can tell you that.
0: Um, it was kind of neat. One of the other aspects that I think a principal can help in is really developing the cross grade support. Right. One of our schools, the fifth grade school, fifth grade actually went to other younger grades to help them code. So they were the supporting people. So it wasn't necessarily them doing the code. It was actually them supporting the younger grades. I thought that was an amazing
1: yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it's it again. It comes back to kind of literacy, right? Like we use we're used to hearing like kindergarten buddies for reading, but coding buddies is certainly just like kind of drop everything and read, drop everything and code, and just like reading buddies, coding buddies. I think that that's that's definitely a way to integrate technology
0: for sure. For sure. Let's see. Let's jump into some curriculum because that's the other thing. I mean, we're talking about hour of code. That is one hour, just kind of an introductory thing but I'm also flipping this up. I've been working with a fifth grade class and we're weekly doing this every week. We have a small time frame where it's trying to fit into the curriculum. And that's another aspect. I think coding can really be is it's not just one hour. <laughs> right, it's right. great to introduce it, but it can also exist other places.
1: Yeah. I think just knowing the work that you're doing with one of our schools, like understanding how to integrate coding into writing, um, where students develop a narrative and then, uh, essentially create um, that narrative on screen. I think that there's a, obviously the, the STEM portion of it all. So you can connect to science standards. You can uh, certainly engineering standards has come at the forefront. Um, we have a focus on transferable skills, and that's certainly something like uh, problem solving, which in my mind, that's kind of all coding really is. And, and that can be applicable to pretty much any setting a kid could encounter um,
0: in elementary school or in life, really. Uh, Yeah, so we started off, I remember we were working with a fifth grade teacher and we've been having this coding going along, but we have wanted to integrate it more into their work, you know, in their classroom. And she's doing narratives right now. Uh, And I think you referenced this a little bit, but we started off and the thing about coding and the thing about actually any logic thing is, it's okay to just say, this didn't work. You go down a path, realize it didn't work, and came back and come back from that. And usually you wind up with something better. And we did that. In fifth grade, we went down and we were going to start incorporating narratives. So the teacher wanted the students to write a story and then program it. She was actually out the day that I came down there and was helping some of the kids design the narratives. And they came up with some really cool stuff. It says, okay, the character had black hair. She was in a wheelchair and she got was flying in an airplane and it got hit by lightning. I, I mean, it was elaborate <laughs> and fun. And then we came back the next week and like, okay, let's see how we can apply this in Scratch. And all of a sudden, the kids just kind of got stuck on trying to build these characters or find them. And it was they lost the point of both writing the story and programming and just trying to do this unnecessary research. <laughs>
1: right?
0: Uh, so we actually backtracked from that. And I was playing with it. And Scratch had this little thing called Surprise Sprite and Surprise Background. I helped write a uh, rewrite the lesson plan so that they would use those surprise. So the students don't have a choice of what the characters were anymore. And didn't have a choice of what the backgrounds were. And I wrote the lesson. I'll post out the lesson. I don't think there's any reason not to on the show notes. They get two characters and they get two backgrounds, and they had to write a story based on that. And it, sometimes there were buckets. <laughs> 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 one kid, one, poor, one poor person got a bucket. And I'm like, okay, well, that's your ma- one of your main characters is a bucket. <laughs> I did one as an example. I, I called bad milk. I had a, what is it, a centaur a zebra, a refrigerator, and an outdoor scene. (laughs) I had to create a story around that one. Um, Yeah, I I think, (laughs) and having seen
1: that, I think it's fantastic. It it makes kids creative writers, right? And it makes them think about, okay, so we're going to need a conflict and the entire story arc. Um, And I think that that lesson plan looks great and that it should be shared, you know, with as many people as possible. It, It reminds me of something that, um, that I did kind of low tech that didn't really involve coding, but it just shows how you can insert coding into something and it and it doesn't become about the coding. So it's still creative writing, it's just your means of representation is different. So the activity that I used to do is there's something called Rory's Story Cubes, and they're basically dice with different um, icons on them. So if you could theoretically roll these dice and get something like a centaur, uh, a bucket, Um, you know, a refrigerator. (laughs) And then they just had to, from there, from these little icons printed on dice would have to get creative and write a narrative. But I definitely think like using something like Scratch works out in in a way that's way more applicable than someone rolling dice. Cause I I mean, I guess rolling dice could be a profession if you become a a professional (laughs) gambler. But in my mind, you know, by applying it to something through something like coding and representing it in that way, you now are taking something that a kid could develop an interest in and could be applicable to their profession, you know, in their future.
0: Well, it's all about the logic. Like I said, we went down a path, it didn't work, we backtracked, we tried something different, We rebuilt it. That's no different than creating any any application in code, too. So the the logic of going down paths and coming back applies outside of coding, and I think that's one of the big points that I don't know if everybody all, all everybody really notice about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's it's kind of like transferable skill too, you know, it's like self-correcting and, and uh, really understanding what it takes to, to get
0: things done. Now I'm going to transition to the next thing, grading, you know, coding projects. We've talked about self, you know, we talked about um, transferable skills and we, I talked a little bit about taking. Writing narratives and writing with writing uh, with some guidance and support from adults and peers develop and strengthen writing needed by planning revisiting, uh, revising, editing, rewriting, and pub- publishing was one of the uh, performance indicators. Mm-hmm. How do you think we should grade some of these, especially from the curriculum standpoint, and in, in the context that it takes a long time to actually write a program? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that if you use it as a, as a summative assessment and along the way you have check-ins, um, but as far as like populating a rubric or something of that nature, you know, when just looking at the the scale as it exists now, my philosophy around designing a learning scale would be you would make proficient the actual indicator itself. So you would want all of those elements to be present for something that's proficient. Um it, having kids represent their learning in this way, gives you like ample opportunity to measure, I think, transferable skills and that idea of problem solving. So not only should you look at content standards, which I think like this lesson that, that you have done is perfect for, it's definitely, you can definitely get a great measure of content standards. But I, I, again, the focus of a lot of, a lot of our educational experience that we're trying to provide for kids is going to arm them with the skills that they can transfer to, you know, the next academic year or group work, or uh, a profession or college readiness. But when it comes to developing a scale, yeah, I mean, it is it is slightly more challenging um, and you have to look at what you're really measuring. Are you really measuring the student's ability to code or are you measuring- What um, the code is
0: showing? Right, The yeah. results of the code. Right. The lesson plan we have that I put together, it's not measuring the coding ability, it's actually measuring what the coding is representing. Yep. It's yeah. that story. Um, and I think that's a place that you can use it a lot. I've seen, that's not a unique idea is to actually to have use coding to write the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen that. I actually stole that from another presentation I saw. I think they were using the Sephiro robots. So they read a story and then they used the Sephiro robots to write a story um, and they had to navigate through it. So it's good a different way of representing the data and i think that's important for students to have that option Mm -hmm. Uh, not everything has to be done in a slide-based presentation (laughs) right right well yeah and it's different than just like i said the kind of rory story cube thing
1: that i did it's like a kid would roll the dice and then come up with um a storyline or a narrative and a background and and conflict and resolution and all of that but then they were still writing a story so it, it it was um it was a little bit different. Like the method in which they demonstrated their learning was not was just pencil and paper. So it was still very traditional. So I think coding opens up uh, an opportunity f- to
0: really gather students' interests and and kind of light the fuse. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, going to transition to some of the ways that I actually seen coding work um, done in our district. Uh, one of the library media people emailed me, and I got a story about that. I'm going to get to it. But I'm looking at a picture and they decided to look at the Roomba, the vacuum cleaners, and started there for uh, their coding project. Um, They couldn't code the Roomba or maybe they could, you know, depending on how the sensors are with the Roombas and how they detect, you know, chairs and obstacles. Could you actually get it to go on a specific path?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know. I'm looking at an ABC uh, carpet that they're doing. And yeah, I'm mean, a bunch of kids sitting around it and look,
1: I'm interested to see. Yeah. I would like to explore that a little bit further. Like I have a, a robot vacuum at home. It's not the name brand RUBA, but how it senses things um, reminds me of a, a computer science class that I took as a freshman. And basically it's like a touch sensor there. So my, the, my vacuum I have at home, the way it kind of detects the perimeter of a room is it will kind of blindly plot along until it, bumps into a wall and then it'll like give itself like a 90 degree turn and then keep going until it bumps into something else. But I think they also have some kind of laser in them as well, because they are kind of stairs proof. So it knows not to like launch itself off the stairs. So, but as far as, as far as that goes, so I I don't know if it's getting like some kind of reflection from the surface. Um, but it's definitely, it looks cool and the kids are like hyper-focused on it. So that's great to see too. But yeah. I don't know. We'd have to explore that a little bit further.
0: Well, I mean, these robots all have, I've seen a bunch of them that have it out there um, in different aspects. I was at Vermont Fest this year and I actually won two Edison robots. And I'm really liking those because this, the Edison robots, you know, these little orange things, they actually have, you can plug Legos into them. They can drive around, but the sensors that are in them. And that's, I've seen another robot that I had that had similar sensors It has obstacle avoidance that you'll see, uh, light. And I don't know what's incorporated in the Roombas. Roombas, I can't even say it. (laughs) It's like, well, you're a dance guy, right? so Roomba, it sounds the same like a Roomba. Roomba. There you go. Roomba makes more sense now. (laughs) Uh, The Roombas. But you have light, obstacle. I've had some that seen noise. So you can like clap and get it to do something. Um, And an accelerometer. For those of you who don't actually know what an accelerometer is, um, your phones have it. And it's how your phone knows that it's pointing upward versus downward and that it's kind of rotating. Yeah. It, it's like a gyroscope for your phone. and It kind of recognizes that. Yeah. It's popularized
1: by the Nintendo Wii remote, right? That's like the first. Oh, yeah. Instance <laughs> of accelerometers. That,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. We do have our bowling tournaments at our house. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so we had some cool. I thought that was one of the coolest little videos, and actually, it wasn't a video; it's just a photo. I want to see the video yeah. of this thing. I wish they knew they were doing that. I would have tried to get up there. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the role of library media specialists in in this because my my title has tech innovation in in it, and Hour of Code is a big big tech innovation tool uh, and yet I honestly didn't do much for hour of code uh, what happened is I sent out an email I felt obligated to at least send out an email to all staff saying hey our codes next week please reach out if you want me to come in I got these robots that we can bring in there uh, and what I actually got for feedback was several of the library media specialists all sent me an email and says we already got it handled
1: yeah yeah and i think i mean historically right so we're a recently merged system so historically they they depended on their own library media specialists for to i guess to individualize for each school so i think you know now that we know that because this is one of our kind of first operating years um, and i know we brought the library media specialists together and they were greatly appreciative of that um, i think looking at more of like a united front and really saying like here's how here's you know the traditions at each school and here's how we might integrate them in another because sharing ideas is something that we're kind of significantly not good at at this point but yeah I mean I I think that in a way it's it's although you were kind of rebuffed and that probably didn't feel too good (laughs) but you do know that things were happening and and now there's like evidence because you get pictures of these really cool activities and stuff so I I think that you know in the rural schools in which we work, the library media specialists are kind of the first point of contact for a teacher if they're looking for any kind of technology resource. And I think, yeah, you know, and will work, you're new in your position, your position was just created, you know? So I think as we
0: establish your role a little bit more that you'll see more time. It, it'll get that year. And I'm not too worried. What I found, especially in my role is, you know, this episode's about kind of like the central office. And that's where my office is. I'm at the central office. I try and get out to the classrooms as much as possible. Uh, but the library media people are in the cl- in the schools much more often. They have much more contact with the teachers on a day to day. So my role is being able to help the library media specialists in any way I possibly can, or that use them almost as a as a person to kind of lead, give me connections to other teachers. Like they learned that this teacher is doing some stuff with podcasting, uh, as you heard from the previous episode, which I can give you an update on later, but it's almost like a conduit and they're like a great resource in the school. And I have to admit, the library media role has changed. I mean, I know when I first started doing a lot of the IT integration, uh, the library people were librarians. They really understood the card catalog and research, and they still do, and I think it's amazing. But I have seen a lot of them adopt the media specialist aspect of it. Uh, even at my previous school, I it was the library media person that actually took over the maker space and purchased. I, we had a robotic arm. This <laughs> was the coolest little thing. It, you could control it. You could get it to pick up stuff. I remember coming down and helping them d- build different challenges with this robotic arm. I think they're becoming more and more important. I think the librarians realizing that uh, their role in schools is media heavy, is part of the makerspace movement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've recently, over the last year, we've seen makerspaces pop up in a couple of our different schools just based on some kind of grant funding that was secured. And And I do think that at that time, uh, library media specialists were really the the people that kind of led the charge or are in, are in charge of managing those resources in our buildings. And it's also, I mean, that doesn't undersell certainly, and you kind of alluded to this, but that doesn't undersell their importance as kind of, you know, literature curators as well. So they, they all have a deep knowledge of children's literature um, and young adult literature as well. So that's super important that we have that as an additional focus. But yeah, I mean... The uh, boots on the ground they are the people that are kind of the de facto tech integrationists um, in their individual schools so
0: and i just want to give out kudos to any librarians out there because i love you you (laughs) you guys do awesome work wanted to transition a little bit to some other coding especially for maybe high school high schoolers and did you know about app script coding at all where you could actually write coding inside of google docs no were you familiar with that before I came on? No, board? I didn't know. I was running my podcast before, and then I learned about app scripting, which basically inside of Google Docs, um, I'm like in, and you go to tools, and you have a script editor. You can actually get Google Docs to do anything you want. <laughs> and then I remember when I first started out, uh, I think it was G class folders was my very first program I wrote. And what it was is Google Docs is really cool, but they didn't have a good way of sharing documents back and forth. Uh, this was like Google Class pre Google Classroom, and I needed a way for to organize the docs that were being shared back and forth between teachers and stuff. And I was there wasn't a solution out there, um, and I wound up learning about app scripting and writing this little tiny app that would create the folders and create the shares for them. Uh, And it worked out really well. And I think it actually got kind of popular. I've heard a few people across the country that that have used it and still remember using it. So I actually got hooked on being able to write these little programs inside of Google Docs. And if as an educator or as a high school teacher, I encourage you to take a look at it because it is a web-based coding platform. So you don't need a computer. Chromebooks work fine with it. It's based off of javascript so there's a lot of information out there already and how to how to make it work and it's a great way just to enhance google docs if you're a google docs user to get them to do that one example of that is in this school we're actually talking about newsletters uh, and we have one principal who's been sending out a beautiful newsletter i think she's using s'mores and it while s'mores is great and a great platform Um, especially if you're just using it for one person, but she wanted to scale it out so all the teachers could use it and all those other things. And what was happening was uh, the cost kind of exponentially went up. And I kept looking for a way to maybe take like a Google Doc and email that out as a platform, and I could not find a way. Uh, There was a couple things out there. And so I started playing around, and I found out I was able to actually take a Google document and use it as the body of an email. Um, And that's been the add-on I've been working on later uh, recently. So, and that's all done. It just right inside, going up to tools and script editor and building it and you can publish it. And getting down the line, one of the things I really like about it is because anybody can publish. Um, There is a vetting process and you do have to create a good product. But that means students can build an application that goes with uh, Google Docs and enhances it if they find something. And then they can publish that and they have a published work that they can talk about and share.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that the how applicable it is because it's not something else that they have to go to and something different. Like most students, most staff members, um, including the administrator to which you're referring who uses s'mores is also familiar with Google Docs and it's kind of a one-stop shop. So to have that running um, without having to go anywhere else I think is really impactful and, and not to mention the cost savings. So it's no longer a subscription. It's something that's just built in um, and people don't have to learn about it. They kind of just does it. Yeah.
0: And I, the, I will admit that the um, I've some of the best add ons that you'll see in the add on uh, with Google docs have actually been written by teachers. I, I know there was a math equation editor, like one of the most popular math equation editors was written by a teacher um, who needed it? <laughs> Basically, wanted it for their students. Their their program actually got bought out by a company, and he got went with them. So, and it's now Equate IO. Oh, cool. So, uh, I, I remember talking to him early on when he after he wrote it. It was kind of cool. So, anything else? No, I mean, you I, can. Think I think of? we covered a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I have a sixty second challenge. Actually, I have a script for a 60 second challenge. I haven't come up with a 60 second challenge I'm looking at the show notes. <laughs> you know, this is where I was going to hopefully get you to take 60 seconds out of your day and challenge you to do something. Um, I guess my challenge to you would actually be to open up a Google spreadsheet. And there's a feature called create. Okay, I actually got right. Open up a spreadsheet. Hold on, uh, filler uh, talking. <laughs> you got anything in there?
1: <laughs> yeah, I just noticed that uh, my <laughs> waveform like hasn't been high this entire time. So we will see how that goes. Um, yeah, we didn't lose you. Yeah, no. I mean, we may have. We just might have to normalize my track to like pull it up. Um, but yeah, so I was I was looking at the uh, show notes and I didn't see the waveform not really going up. So I went in and turned the mic up, but that was only recently.
0: Okay, well we'll we'll figure we're we're, we're working out all the details on this thing. Okay, where is that? Uh, function record. Yeah, and the podcast is actually changing a little bit for the school. Uh, it's going away from the third grade, and it's actually going to be was it GISP is going to be taking it over. So it's going to be uh, third and fourth graders that are going to do the student podcast. And then my wife, who is a Girl Scout teacher, or a Girl Scout leader, decided that she was going to do some podcasting with the students too. So I thought it just kind of like took right off. So (laughs) I'm surrounded by podcasting. Oh, come on, where's this tool? Okay, yeah, macro. There we go. (laughs) So in Google Spreadsheets, that was good filler time. <laughs> <laughs> in Google Spreadsheets, go to tools and go to macros and record a macro. That's my 60-second challenge, to go use that little tool. Uh, what's neat about the tool is that once you record it, you can actually then go into the script editor and actually see the t- the actual code that it recorded. So if I'm recording a macro and I type in one and then hit enter and eight, enter, and then I save the macro and I save it again. I can then look at it and I can see this script that it created that it used to recreate that, <laughs> which is kind of a really cool, interesting thing that you can actually kind of do some record something and then you can see what the steps were in code that it took to make that happen. So that's my little 60 second challenge. okay are you trying it yeah I was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I figured okay so I'm going to close up here we've been at this for 35 minutes which is kind of cool for our first co-hosted podcast this is episode two and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast with your host Bjorn Barron and Skylar Lombard. <laughs> uh, you can follow the podcast by going to www.edlisten.com or you can go directly to the podcast, which is anchorf.fm slash edlisten. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Do you have any contact information like Twitter or anything?
1: Uh, I do have a, t- a Twitter account set up, but I don't have it um, really active or anything. So I'll refrain from that for the time being. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you can use mine and I'll definitely get the message to them. So, uh, so I encourage you to get the conversation going by, showing, by posting comments or using the hashtag edlisten on your social network. Again, thank you very much for listening and never stop learning. Well, we're recording now, so anything we say can show up in the show, especially at the end.